Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from the Wesley Foundation, improving the lives of California's children and youth at risk. The California Endowment, working to achieve health and justice for all. Learn more at calendow.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected. On the web at theschmidt.org. Today, a special edition of the California Report magazine, the Vietnam War and how it shaped the lives of some Californians. This week, we're in San Diego, home to the Marine Corps base at Camp Pendleton. We'll meet a pair of sisters who arrived at the base as refugees from Vietnam. I remember that's where our tent was, and that's where I played hopscotch every day in front of the tent. Not all the battles were fought in Vietnam. Enlisted men were also fighting a war against racism within the ranks. Symbolically return all Vietnam medals and other service medals given me, given me by the power structure that has genocidal policies against non-white peoples of the world. We'll hear how that revolt took hold at Camp Pendleton and sparked an unlikely friendship. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. It was the late 1960s, and young men from across the nation were being drafted to go to Vietnam. Cliff Mansker signed up willingly, though. He was a baby-faced 17-year-old, and he was determined to join the Marines because he wanted to get away from his strict parents and from the west side of Chicago. The future there, what I saw, was not very good because the the guys that I knew, the friends that I had, they, they either ended up in jail or they were dead. It was drugs or alcohol. He tried to stay out of trouble, though. He'd been in high school ROTC for three years. I was far advanced from the recruits in there because I already knew how to strip a rifle down. I already knew how to drill, how to march. and uh, I was in the special drill team, so I didn't even know how to twirl a rifle around. Once he joined the Marines, Cliff says, people started treating him with respect. And when he got shipped to Camp Pendleton near San Diego, he was thrilled. Come out here to California, you can find a better life. And so that's what I did, that's what my brother did, and most of us Uh, the young men in my family did. At Pendleton, he connected with other African-American Marines. Together, they listened to The Temptations and James Brown. The Black Power Movement, which had strong roots in California, was spreading. 
Cliff was embracing his pride in his black identity. He and his friends would mash their hair tight to their skulls under stocking caps in front of their commanding officers, then comb out their afros once they got off base. Racism in my own town, it was hey, that particular town the most segregated place on earth. So uh, we thought that California is the land of the free. I mean, it would be the golden land. But I learned different. I learned that California was even worse. Just outside Camp Pendleton, in the beach town of Oceanside, another teenager was growing up in the shadow of the Vietnam War. Her name is Teresa Cerda, and her mother was a farm worker picking strawberries and string beans. Teresa grew up in a working-class neighborhood and remembers watching the Latino and African-American kids get shipped off to Vietnam. And they came back to poverty, and they fought this war on behalf of the government, and they were still, they were worse off than when they left. Because I grew up in a military city, a lot of my classmates' parents were involved in military. They were sent over to Vietnam, some came back, some didn't. Teresa began questioning why the U.S. was sending young men to fight in Vietnam in the first place. People are being killed for what? I couldn't understand what, what the reasoning was. I started digging into what I thought were some of the reasons, and they weren't right at all. And so at age 16, she got involved with the Movement for a Democratic Military, a group organizing GIs to stand up against the war. Well, this is the block that I used to come to every night to leaflet the Marines in town say, hey, are you a Marine? And they'd say, oh, how could you tell? <laughs> and so I'd say, would you be interested in joining us for some coffee? She was inviting them to a place called the Green Machine. It was one of many coffee houses around the country where active duty GIs could come get free coffee, listen to music, read underground newspapers, and talk with peace activists. There she was, a young teenage girl standing in front of strip joints and bars, trying to convince Marines to get into her car so she could give them a ride to the coffee house. She dressed in jeans, boots, and army fatigues to downplay her gender. I actually spoke some of their lingo because I picked it up, you know, like the green suck. That's slang for the Marines. And I say, is the green suck sucking the life out of you? You know, let's talk about it. And here's a place where you can talk about it and be safe and be welcomed. Out of earshot of commanding officers. And mostly it was the GIs venting. We realized that early on that they needed to vent about their experience in the military. And every other word was laced with F this, F that. And they found a place where they could vent safely. Especially, she says, the GIs returning from Vietnam who had witnessed brutal violence. They were traumatized, we didn't know it then. I remember at first I was so angry at them because they would talk about the atrocities they committed over there. They say they're anti-war, yet they're bragging about the stuff they did over there. But I slowly realized that they needed to talk about it because in their heart, they didn't think it was right. 232 GIs killed and 900 wounded makes one of the heaviest weeks of the Vietnam War. And it is not a week. It is just over two days, the past two days, two of the worst we have known in Vietnam. Cliff Mansker wanted to ship out to Vietnam, but he never left the States. His brother was serving in Vietnam, and under military policy, two siblings couldn't be dispatched into combat at the same time. Instead, the Marines sent him to cook school. 
His job was to feed thousands of Marines returning from Vietnam or heading out from Camp Pendleton. But on base, he found himself fighting a different battle within the ranks. And just a note, as he tells this story, there's some graphic language. There was a big, big riot on the base at the movie theater. They were playing uh, in the heat of the night with Sidney Poitier. Seems like a cold sweat creeping across my brow. Yeah. And we were sitting in the theater, the black Marines the and, the, and the Hispanics on one side and the white Marines over in the, on the other side. I didn't catch what you said. Get rid of the naked. You don't, we will. So as they was using a lot of the, uh, the racial epithets in the, uh, in the movie, all of the white guys was cheering, you know. And so after the movie was over, the black guys and the Hispanics went out the side door and then the white guys came out and then the fight started. Cliff was pummeled, returned the punch, and when it was over, he was locked up in the base jail, called the Brig. He'd already been branded a troublemaker for questioning his commanding officers. He says many of them were white from the South and had no qualms about using racial slurs. You know, I questioned what they were doing. And I said, this is not right. What you're doing is not right. The way you're treating us. <clears throat> I said, you're not working 18 hours a day. We are. You know, shut up, nigga. What are you talking about? So I remember they locked me up for three days. Cliff's anger at the way he was being treated in the Marine Corps grew as the months passed. One day, a fellow Marine told him about a meeting of disgruntled GIs. They were not only questioning racism in the military, but the whole point of the war in Vietnam, where so many black and brown GIs were dying on the front lines. A new phenomenon has cropped up at several army bases these days, a so-called underground GI press, which consists largely of anti-war newspapers. Military authorities are clamping down hard on Our the Our newspaper was actually distributed out in the base. Yeah, I used to drop bundles off around the different areas and to the guys who would pass them out there. And I'd go to every barracks and place one of these on their bunks or wherever I could, and they can never catch me. That's why they call me the midnight paper boy, because it was always at midnight. When Cliff and I meet, I pull out a stack of copies of those old newspapers that I found in an archive. On a front page from September 1970, there's a young Cliff, two fists in the air. Below the picture, it reads, Prisoner of War. Oh, wow. <laughs> you want to just read what that says? Yeah, I see. Brother Cliff Master is currently being held in Camp Pendleton Maximum Security Unit for two reasons. First, most easily seen is the fact that he is black. The second, because he was revealing to his black brothers the truth about the racist, fascist Marine Corps. Brother oh, Mansker. Mansker was a wonderful man. He was a fantastic organizer, Cliff Mansker. He brought the group together. I mean, there was a lot of hot-blooded black GIs because they were pissed. And I think Cliff had the unique ability to channel that anger and heat into an organization that became pretty powerful for its day. Teresa met Cliff at the Green Machine Coffee House. 
Some days she'd leave high school early to volunteer there. One of her jobs was to go on base, where she visited with Marines locked up for affiliating with the anti-war movement. And I was supposed to be their little sister, and we would pass information about what was going on in the movement and, and what we were doing to help get them out and stuff like that. Until one day I got caught and was banned from Camp Pendleton. It's still so amazing to me that you were so brave. I, I didn't see myself as brave at all. I mean, there was moments like sneaking into the you know, brig under false pretenses, but that scared me. And getting arrested. Actually, I got arrested a couple of times, but I actually, I used to thought it's because I hated the war so much. Then I started realizing it's because I love the people that were being used as cannon fodder. And that just wasn't right. Some of those Marines attended her high school graduation, cheered when she raised a fist, power to the people, on stage. They take her to the shooting range to teach her how to use a gun. And Marines like Cliff Mansker stood up for her when her classmates called her a commie. And what I remember about Cliff is that he had these hands that were so expressive. And I remember he used to sing to me. We were so close. We were such good friends. He's just a wonderful, gentle person with a lot of fire in his heart. Cliff and Teresa had lost touch after the war. Once I met Teresa and learned her story, I searched for Cliff. And through Facebook, I found him living in Moreno Valley. He agreed to make the two-hour drive down to Oceanside to see her. Today, Teresa is a grandmother of four. She's got a shy smile, wears jean shorts and flip-flops. Cliff is a pastor at a Christian church, married with two grown children. I've been 40, what, 47, 48 yeah, years? Yeah, Oh, wow. Let me see your hands. Oh, they're the beautiful hands I remember. <laughs> oh, I'm so anxious to hear all about your life. From this. Cliff is wearing a baseball hat that spells out Marine in bright capital letters. This was probably the one is strongest one friendship I had with Marine. So I am so, so glad to hear him and see him. Memory Lane. It kind of reminds me of this one because this one, it kind of had like a little porch. Teresa drives Cliff down a quiet residential street. Small houses, front porches, fenced in yards. They stop at the bungalow where the Green Machine was headquartered. In the 60s, prominent anti-war activists came by to show their support. So you guys, was this the house? You said Angela Davis stopped by the house. She stopped by the one in Vista, but she also stopped off mm-hmm. here. And so did Jane Fonda. As an anti-war group in a military town, they kept their guard up. Organizers took turns patrolling the yard. You remember the sandbags we had at the... <laughs> I remember them well. I remember they were stacked up on the porch here. We had barbed wire, I believe, on the sides of the fences Uh so that we could keep people from sneaking over at night. So what was it that you guys were afraid of? We knew we could get attacked, uh, you know, from crazies or whether it was going to be from the police or the military or whoever. It was obvious the authorities didn't like us 
One evening after a meeting of peace organizers and Marines, someone, no one's sure who, machine gunned the front picture window. I had just left the house with a group of Marines to take back to the base. When Teresa returned, she saw the bullet holes and found out that Jesse Woodard, a young off-duty black Marine, had been shot and wounded. Earlier that night, she had sat in that very spot by the window. I kept thinking, why wasn't I hit? Why did they wait for me to leave? It wasn't until years later I figured that they didn't want to make a martyr out of a high school kid. I go with Cliff and Teresa to the Oceanside Pier, where she remembers how the newspapers and the coffeehouse movement sparked a more public resistance. This is the home of our humongous anti-war march that was led by the GIs, active duty GIs. Yeah. And we followed behind them, and there were thousands of people here. It was huge, huge, huge. Cliff couldn't march that day. His superiors at the base ensured he was locked up in the brig. While we're standing at the pier, he dredges up a memory of one of the many times he was punished for questioning his superiors and questioning the war. He says he was handcuffed and led to the maximum security unit, where his fellow Marines began to brutally beat him at the direction of a commanding officer. They surrounded me, and, uh, and so then the scuffle ensued. And so they were swinging fists, and, uh, but there were so many of them. And, uh, and I remember them holding my arm up, and he was grinning as he was taking the scissors, cutting off my black unity band. He said, you won't be wearing this anymore. The black unity band was a bracelet made out of shoestring. Many black Marines wore it as a symbol against racism. Cliff's commanding officers accused him of violating the dress code and disobeying orders. He got 30 days in the maximum security unit. Was, the whole place was just filled with nothing but black Marines. Nothing but a black Marine. Cliff was court-martialed on 22 charges and faced a military trial. He recalls one commanding officer going ballistic on the stand, spouting racial epithets. After that, he says, the charges were dismissed. Oceanside is a proud military town. As we're walking around, several people notice Cliff's military tattoo and his baseball hat that says Marines. They thank him. One man salutes. All right, simplify. Simplify. Do or die. Do or die. That's right. Have a good one. Yeah. Right. Simplify. Simplify. That's the thing. Uh, uh, Marines will greet another Marine on the right now to this day. We'll do that. Cliff served four years at Camp Pendleton before he was honorably discharged. It's clear he's still proud even after everything he's been through. You can be a patriot and an activist as well. And, and I think the activists are truly the, the patriots of this country because they're, they're standing up for what is right. I see the fire still in him. I see the gentleness in him and I see the fire in his soul. Looking back, Teresa says her time as an organizer listening to GIs share their traumas probably shaped her career as a community college counselor. 
The Green Machine and other coffee houses near military bases were key in building the GI movement to end the war in Vietnam. That movement grew to include active rebellion from GIs across the country, some refusing to sail ships, others refusing to go into combat or going on strike at their bases. Seeing members of the military openly protest helped turn the tide against the Vietnam War. Yet this activism from within the ranks has almost been obliterated from the historical narrative. <laughs> After spending the day reminiscing together, Cliff Mansker and Teresa Cerda share a long hug. Then he gets in his car for the drive back to his family and his church. You know what? You didn't give me your number. I know. It can't be another 47 years. Yeah, it can't be another 47. I don't think I could last another 47 years. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm going to go back home and email him. <laughs> hey! How's it going? You're listening to a special edition of the California Report magazine about the lasting impact the Vietnam War had on the lives of Californians. We just heard about a deep friendship between an anti-war activist and a Marine at Camp Pendleton. That base also figured prominently in the final phase of the war. In the spring of 1975, the North Vietnamese took control of Saigon, and the U.S. began frantically evacuating tens of thousands of South Vietnamese. Overnight, Pendleton transformed into a makeshift refugee camp. And the increasing tempo of evacuation in the face of a rapidly deteriorating situation. And we didn't know if we were going to keep up with the keep up with the people coming in or not. The so Marines had 36 very, very hours to set up tents, toilets, and showers before refugees started arriving. There was approximately 2,980 tents, and there was approximately 50,000 people here. That first wave included two teenage sisters. Evelyn and Jessica Kao. They hadn't been back to the base in 42 years. We meet up for a tour with another former refugee, Philip Nguyen. He's now an engineer here at Camp Pendleton. I don't know you can remember. What camp you, were you in when you were here? And uh, camp 5. Oh, me too. Really? We were in Camp 5 too. Jessica and Evelyn came from a well-to-do family in Saigon. They spoke French, wore fashionable dresses, barrettes in their hair. They were sheltered teenagers. Their mother hardly let them out of her sight. So coming to Camp Pendleton felt like an adventure. It looked pretty to me. I never camped before, so it was kind of like camping. (laughs) I'm sure my mom was not happy, but for me it was fun. They used scratchy army blankets to keep warm, shared a tent with two other families, They remember long lines for food, except on the days hot dogs were served. It took the Marines a while to figure out what the refugees would eat. Evelyn recalls undercooked rice and no fish sauce. There was one Marine guy. He, I think he served in Vietnam, and then he learned how to eat fish sauce. So in a way for him to connect with the refugees, he would walk around in his pocket with this little fish sauce. And then whenever he wanted to, like, maybe flirt with, you know, some young lady or, you know, being friendly with the kids, he would pull down. I got the fish sauce and even say that in Vietnamese, I have nook mom. (laughs) 
There's a lot of nervous laughter as these two women, now in their 50s, remember being vulnerable teenagers starting over in a new country. But for all their funny stories, they also recall the pain of watching adults in the camp traumatized by the war. There was a woman, she saved the rice, and she would dry the rice out <laughs> outside of her tent <laughs> because we went through the war, and so always worry about not having food. The base is dusty and hot. Helicopters hover above us, and Marines in fatigues walk past metal Quonset huts. It's hard to tell there was once a refugee camp here. But one Marine we meet on base remembers it well. Michael Duran helped maintain the camp during the war. He was also in Saigon, helping refugees onto helicopters back in 1975. We left one week before Saigon fell. Yes. If, if you get out before the fall of Saigon, you get out ahead of the rush. I was there for the rush. I mean, it was still a war going on. We are still being assaulted. Um, so just packing them into the helicopter was our main concern. We wasn't thinking about how many can get in, just get them in. What do you do with these people who want out? Refugees who have had enough of the enemy from within. The Marine Corps created a training film to guide the effort. Your job when you encounter them? Where possible to take care of these refugees? to bring them to a place where they can be safe, where they can learn to believe in life again. If this is truly Camp 5, then I'm pretty sure that we're just right over here around this bend, because I remember that's where our tent was and that's where I play hopscotch every day in front of the tent. We finally reach Camp 5, one of eight clusters of tents on the northern part of the base. Today, it's just a dry meadow at the bottom of a steep hill. The group gathers in the shade of a massive oak tree. Philip Nguyen, the other former refugee, and Michael Durant, the Marine, look over Evelyn's shoulder as she leaves through a scrapbook, photographs and letters as thin as onion skin, carefully pasted to the pages. And you guys, these are these letters that your father wrote? I see Camp Pendleton yeah. on Red, yeah. Red Cross Stationery. This was when my sister got here. What do you think? How do you feel standing here again? This is truly a land of opportunity, but I think this country is very paradoxical country. Like we would create war with everybody, but then we also help people the most. Um, but I am grateful for my experience, you know, for being evacuated to this country. And for Jessica? Coming here meant living a life of her own creation. I felt bad that the war had to end with us losing. Uh, but in the meantime, I couldn't wait to get out of the country because that was always my dream. I did not like being submissive. They call me tomboy. Here they would call me a feminist, but I did not like the culture there. So when I got here, yes, I did have cultural shock, but I accepted it. And without the war, I don't think I would be able to come here. The K.O. family stayed at Camp Pendleton for about a month. They left when a San Diego family agreed to sponsor them. They've made their home here. 
Evelyn became a school guidance counselor, Jessica a first grade teacher. Michael, how do you feel when you hear these guys' stories knowing that you helped this, this group of refugees get out? I'm elated. Mm-hmm. I mean, they came over here and they made the best of the best. They had an attitude of, I have an opportunity to do something, I'm going to do something. And they did. And they started a great career, a career that helps others, just like they were helped. So they, they, they're paying it forward now. listening to the California Report magazine, a special edition about Californians and the Vietnam War, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director and field producer is Susie Racho. Our senior editor is Victoria Malion. Our senior producer is Ingrid Becker. Special thanks this week to Bonnie Wildorf and the producers of the film Sir, No Sir. Our technical producer is Seal Muller, with help from engineer Danny Bringer. Our team includes David Marks, Bianca Taylor, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Barracuda Networks. Cloud-ready firewalls engineered for today's next-generation business networks. Learn more at barracuda.com slash cloud ready. The James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who were working but struggling with poverty. More at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected. On the web at theschmidt.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.